Well, it is a blessing to come together on this Reformation Sunday and to uh, lift up our voices in song and to um, even hear from God's Word today. And today, I, being Reformation Sunday, sometimes we'll do a special message, and uh, I decided just to continue on in the Gospel of Mark as we enter this new section on the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ in Mark 14 and 15. If you'll take your outline out of the bulletin and just flip it over to the back side, I provided here for you a parallel of all of the events of uh, our Lord's passion. And so you can uh, look at that. You can see what Mark doesn't cover. Some is covered in Luke. Some is covered in, in Matthew. Some are unique to John. But this is a helpful guide as we take the next several weeks to go through these two chapters. Um, You could be reading the parallel accounts to get uh, the full impact of what we're going to be considering. Of course, the major themes in Mark 14 and 15 describe betrayal, arrest, mock trials, and ultimately crucifixion when our Lord Jesus will be crucified on the cross. This is known as Jesus' passion. That simply just comes from the Latin word to suffer. And so the main theme of Mark 14 is betrayal and abandonment. Following the institution of the Lord's Supper, which we'll look at next week, we see our Lord alone in the garden. The disciples can't even stay awake. Um, The disciples flee. Uh, He's alone at the cross. He's condemned by Rome. He's condemned by his own people. And, and, And ultimately, even the Father in chapter 15 of verse 34. The second section, uh, most of 15 and the very end of 14, uh, focus on Jesus' endurance in sufferings. One commentator rightly noted, uh, we have cheaply seen our Savior as our prophet and teacher. Now we have him as our great high priest and as he would accomplish his priestly work. In this section, Jesus, for the first time, names himself as Messiah in chapter 14 and verse 62, and also as king before Pilate. But mark it well that throughout this section there are no signs of our Lord Jesus in despair, in anger, in fear, cowering under the path that the Father has laid out for him. There is no evidence of that whatsoever. In fact, it's the exact opposite as he displays full sovereign control over each and every situation, submitting himself to the Father's will. And let's go ahead and read the verse 16 verses, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 16. The title of the message is simply Betrayal and Devotion, as we'll see those two themes. Beginning in verse 1. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they, was, they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. And while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, nard, and she broke the vial and poured it all over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? 
she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be spoken in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priest in order to betray him. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him and wherever he goes, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. And the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we would once again ask that you would speak to us through your word, even as we have just sung. We pray, Lord, that the truths that are here would penetrate our hearts. And Lord, as we consider to see the love and the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ and his determination to purchase our salvation, may we be those that are in awe of that very fact. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified even during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, of course, we, well, the last several weeks, we talked about that most glorious event, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. No one will mistake it when that happens. There's an emphasis on no one knows the time, no one knows when this will occur, but the responsibility for us is to be ready for his coming and, and to have that eschatological hope that we will soon see him face to face. But today, as we enter this section here, the story begins with a sinister plot to kill Jesus Christ. The Messiah who has done nothing but good his entire life, but his earthly ministry has been manifested for all to see. The healings, the touching of a leper, the feeding of the multitudes, the compassion that he had deep down in his bowels for the lost. The religious leaders begin to conspire to betray and kill him. And, and also even Judas uh, is conspiring with them. And so the story oozes with intrigue as we unpack this. Uh, again, it's amazing to consider that Judas, being with him for three years, side by side, as it were, rubbing elbows with the other disciples and, and, and our Lord Jesus Christ and witnessing all of these wonderful good deeds that he has done, would be the one to betray him. Isn't that difficult? If you just reflect back in your own life the last few years, times that you have been betrayed, maybe it's someone that has gossiped about you and, and you find out about it. Maybe it's someone doing whatever, but, but it's so much more painful when you find out it's somebody that you're close to, a family member, a close friend. That makes it so much more painful. 
And so with Judas being so close to Jesus, and he so easily betrays for a mere 30 pieces of silver. We'll talk more about him. Um, in regards to this closeness, I read a story this week of uh, um, Julius Caesar, of all things. He knew this treachery, and among the conspirators that, that, that came to assassinate him was one that he regarded as a family member in 44 B.C., Marcus Brutus. Caesar not only trusted him, but he favored him as a son. And I believe as the story unfolds, it's as he saw his face, he put his sword down, and that's when they assassinated him. And then we see contrasted to the sinister plot to kill Jesus Christ with the religious leaders, which we've had hints of that along, right? And, and then Judas, who, who's here, and sandwiched in between is this beautiful story of devotion to Christ. Giving of all to Christ. A display of great faith that this woman has. Sola fide, as we think about the Reformation. The Reformation is something we should be thankful for and displays of faith like this because the, the idea of the plain teaching of the Word of God was lost. And so as Martin Luther wrestled with the question and the other reformers, how is one right with God? And they began to return to the Holy Scriptures to see that we're justified by faith. And they articulated these, these five solas uh, that, that became known as the five solas of the Reformation. They're on our homepage, on our website. And these five things work together in the plan of God, even though each one is distinct. And Rob's did a great job at bringing those out. But simply put, it's based on the Word of God alone, Scripture alone. And we affirm that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of alone, to the glory of God alone. So let's consider our first point this morning, the dreadful murder plot conceived. And this is a twofold. So I'm looking at verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11, okay? So the two pieces of bread, and we're going to get to the meat of the sandwich of devotion, the display of devotion in a moment. But you have the religious leaders who are, you might consider, on the outside of the circle. But then you have one from within the circle that is betraying Jesus. So the wicked scheming of the chief priests and scribes. It says in verse 1, Now the Passover and, and the unleavened bread were two days away. This is taking place on Tuesday evening. If you've been paying attention as we go through this exposition, there's a lot that has taken place on Tuesday. It's an extremely long day uh, for our Lord. This is um, no doubt probably towards the end of the day, I would, I would assume. And so we should talk a minute about the Passover. The Passover was one of those great festivals that, rem that reminded them of the great deliverance from the bondage in Egypt. We read the passage in Exodus 12. Um, and so this was a time when the pilgrims would gather to Jerusalem. It had to be celebrated in Jerusalem. And of course the ritual included the sacrifice of a lamb. Not just any lamb. It had to be unblemished and spotless one year old. Now, children, you've been to petting zoos, right? You ever go in those little petting zoos, and they usually have a, some goats and lambs kind of walking around there? Or Bates Nut Farm? Aren't they kind of ugly? They're kind of ugly to begin with, and to think that there's one that would be like spotless and perfect, uh, you can imagine if you had a herd to go out there and, and to hunt for that. They're typically ugly, but you had to find the choicest one, the one that, that without spot, 
And of course, the temptation for those with small herds would be, well, I'll give the second or third best one, but I really want to keep the best one for myself. No, you were to give the best to the Lord. And of course, in that original context, that blood was applied to the doorpost of the house. So that when the angel of death came to destroy the firstborn in Egypt, that the angel of death would pass over those Jewish homes that had the blood. Of course, this points beautifully, as I'm going to bring up several times, um, that to the redemption that was made for us on the cross. It's, it's interesting to consider that even it was through the, first, the death of the firstborn by which Israel was saved from Egypt, and it would be the death of a firstborn that would save us from our ruin and our sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this was to be sacrificed on the afternoon of the Jewish month Nisan, and it's 14 Nisan, and then it was eaten after sunset to midnight. And so all of these lambs would be sacrificed on a particular day, and then after sunset, which would be the change of the day, not midnight like it is for us, it would be at sunset, was the next day, and it would be eaten on the 15th. And it had to be consumed between sunset and midnight. So the Passover was immediately followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, we read about that as well. That would be uh, Nisan 15 to 21. The Jews were required to remove anything that had yeast in it from their homes. And I don't know if you were listening when Rob was reading, but three times, at least three times, it said, he shall be removed from the congregation. That's excommunicated if you're found to be sneaking a little yeast in your house. I mean, this was serious business. And so it says that it's two days away. So that's our time stamp. We're still on Tuesday night. Now notice what they plan to do. Here they are discussing, and they were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. Isn't that violent language? For somebody that's never done anything to them whatsoever except to make them look silly in religious arguments, right, um, to conspire with such vehemency and such hatred. Now, of course, this plan has been brewing a long time. Back in chapter 3 and verse 6, it says, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians of how they might destroy him. Chapter 11 as well, it says that the chief priests and the scribes heard this and they began seeking how to destroy him. So this plot's been brewing for a while. But notice what it says. And they were saying, not during the festival. Otherwise, there might be a riot of the people. They did not want this to be a public execution. They would prefer to, in the dark of night, to push him over a cliff or something along those lines just to get rid of him quietly, just like any other murder plot. You typically don't want a whole lot of witnesses. But the Lord would have it the other way around. Of course, you, you remember that all these pilgrims had to come to Jerusalem for this feast, so the population has increased several times fold. And so it's, it's very crowded there. So riots could be expected if you were to start something like this. But in the providence of God, he overturns the plans of the wicked, as we know. This will become a very public event. Listen to J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop from the 1900s, what he observes. The death of our Lord took place on the very day when Jerusalem was most full of people and the Passover feast was at its height. In every way, the counsel of these wicked men was turned to foolishness. 
they thought they were going to put an end forever to Christ's spiritual kingdom, and in reality, they were helping to establish it. Well, skipping to verse 10 and 11, and it's uh, speaking of Judas. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him. Notice the emphasis on betrayal. The Greek word literally means to hand over, to deliver over. And it's, the word is repeated several times here. And notice how the gospel writers don't mince words. By the way, Judas, he was one of the twelve. The twelve of which you heard so much about leading up to Mark 14. The twelve that were sent out to preach and to teach and, and to heal and all of that. He was one of them. And he goes the chief priests. Of course, and Luke and John, they both, uh, in this, the parallels, they say that Satan entered Judas's heart. Now, obviously, that means that Judas was never truly converted. How far a man may go and look on the outside as though there's some reality and some evidence of fruit and yet be lost. It's an amazing thing to consider this. I think this, this should bring some sobriety to each one of us to examine our own hearts and to be sure that we're in the faith. We're commanded to do that by the Apostle Paul. Mark focuses on the moral failure of Judas, which ultimately serves as a paradigm of abandonment from the rest of the disciples who were converted, but who still ran because they were scared in chapter 14 and verse 50. But Judas, don't, don't, let, don't, don't stumble about the fact that Satan entered his heart. Judas is a moral agent that is responsible for his actions, right? You can't say, oh, the devil made me do it, right? <laughs> that, that doesn't work, except for with Flip Wilson, who most of you never even heard of, <laughs> um, the old comedian. But, uh, so he is responsible for his actions. And notice in verse 11, to see even more the depravity, the end of it, he says, and he began seeking how to betray him at the opportune time. This word means to, to spy diligently, to, to be very deliberate and to examine and to investigate. It means that this is what was consuming his mind. When will be the opportune time to hand him over? This is a man filled with wicked scheming and uh, wretchedness and to betray the Lord Jesus Christ of all people. It's like he's a lion about to attack its prey with his mouth watering, prancing around. When's the right time to get Jesus? Such depravity. And we also see that in the chief priests. Look in the beginning of verse 11. What does it say? And they were... You see it? glad. They were glad when they heard this, when they heard that Judas was willing to hand over Jesus Christ. They were glad. They were rejoicing in the wicked plot and in the murder scheme. What depravity. Jeremiah 32, I signed and sealed the deed and called and witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales. That's essentially what happens here. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And this man with his covetous heart is moved to hand somebody over for murder for 30 pieces of silver. Listen to John Calvin from the Institutes. He says, the heart of man 
has so many recesses of vanity, so many retreats of falsehood, and is so enveloped with fraudulent hypocrisy that it frequently deceives even himself. It was the love of money and this cancer of covetousness that prompted Judas to do this. But let's transition now to verses 3 to 9. Let's go, having considered the two pieces of bread, as it were, of this Mark and Sandwich, as one of the commentators calls it, let's go now to the, to the meat here. And, and, the, and then the middle one of, of these, when these happen, help to expound the other one or to contrast. And we see a dramatic display of devotion. And it isn't true that great acts of affection and worship are often undervalued by men. I mean, it says even here that this great display of devotion, that immediately what do the disciples do? They become indignant. They're angry. There's a better use for money than anointing Jesus. It's amazing. Now, I personally believe, having studied this, that the differences between Luke 7 and this passage and Matthew um, are different enough to, uh, to think that they are two distinct events. Um, he's in Galilee in Luke 7. Um, he's in a Gentile household. Bethany, it says that he was in Bethany, is two miles outside of Jerusalem. Now, of course, we talked about that. That's where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. It would be the last stop from the road to Jericho up to Jerusalem. And so it was a favorite place for Jesus to be. And this is hosted by Simon the leper. Now, one thing we do know that he... He was a healed leper, obviously, or he couldn't hold a social function. But the story is, a, is amazing on many fronts. First of all, it is absolutely a violation of etiquette for a female to come in and to interrupt male fellowship in the Jewish context. Unless she was serving food, to come in and to interrupt male fellowship or a, or a male meal, it is a complete violation of etiquette. You see that also paralleled in Luke 7. I wanted that read because of the great praise that our Lord gives to this woman who was such a sinner that loved much. And I, I think we can bring some of that into this as far as filling in the gaps, as it were. Now, this anointing may be the same as John 12, where it says that it was Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. Their home was also in Bethany. It's very possible that, that, that there were two distinct events or that they, they were same. I just can't be dogmatic about it, primarily because this says it was two days before Passover. The one account in John says it was six days before Passover. So if there were two anointings four days apart, so be it. But look what she does. She comes in with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. This is something that is very expensive. Uh, she comes with this aromatic oil, which actually is extracted from the root of an Indian plant from India. And to maintain its fragrance, it would be bottled in these flasks or, or jars and, and then sealed tightly so that the only way to, uh, to get the aroma out, to get the oil out, is to break the neck. Oftentimes, it would have a long neck on them. And so you would snap that vial or flask to release it. And of course, you can picture the scene as she snaps that neck, as she anoints our Lord, the aroma that would instantly fill the room. Absolutely adorable aroma, anointing his body for burial, as Jesus himself would say here. You can picture the scene in this Jewish context. 
reclining back on one elbow. He's, he's sort of half, not really laying down, but reclining back. And, and she comes into the room. She snaps that neck off and she begins applying the oil to our Lord Jesus Christ. What an incredible act of devotion. What a display of faith that she really believed that this is Messiah. This is the one. This is the long-awaited one. It's as though the Father Himself in heaven with such love for His own Son is dripping this perfume from heaven through the hands of Mary in the John case and this unnamed woman here to anoint His own Son. We are told that this was worth 300 denarii. Now that, of course, is 300 days uh, wages, and which would be about a year's wages. So you think this could have been something of her retirement fund. It could have been something of all that she had. It could have been something that she inherited. However she got it, it was worth a lot, and she determined to show her devotion by spilling it all on the Lord Jesus Christ. We see such a picture. This deed points to her act of faith. But look at the disciples. They don't get it. (laughs) But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. Now, the word to be indignant means to be aroused with anger. It's the same word, ironically, that occurred when James and John in chapter 10 were saying, you know, we want to sit at your right and left hand, and that says of the other disciples, they became indignant towards them. Well, that's the same word. They're becoming indignant. And their insensitive, cold hearts could not understand such costly liberality. They called it waste. And so they had indignation within themselves. And then when it says that they scolded her, it literally means to to flare in the nostrils in anger. The disciples are completely overreacting here. They're they're chastising this woman. They're saying, how could this be? Their condemnation demeans the woman and her gift by saying there are better uses for that money or that perfume. And in so doing, they're really demeaning Jesus by saying, You're not worthy of such extravagance. Do you see that? I don't think they realized it at the time, but that's essentially what they're doing. Throughout church history, we've always had some that will look down their noses and say, he's a religious fanatic. I mean, he goes to every church meeting there is and and, and all of this kind of stuff, or, or, you know, somebody that just gives of their resources to kingdom work, and to the needs of the people of God. And some people can say, oh, they're a fanatic or whatever, and that's essentially what's going on here. What is she doing? She's wasting. I mean, Paul himself, remember, he said that, that some thought he was beside himself, and that is that he's crazy. But you see, it's a cold heart that leads to dull, dullness in our devotion to God. Once you understand the incredible sinfulness of sin, the wickedness of your own heart, you begin to appreciate the mercy of God displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ coming to purchase salvation for us. And then it's, it, there, there's, it's no hold, holds barred. We, there's, there's, 
nothing that is too good to give to Christ. She cried with the psalmist, what shall I render to the Lord for all of His benefits to me? You see, when you look through the lens of Scripture, you begin to see all that the Lord has done for you, giving you life and breath, giving you health as we sung in our first hymn today, uh, giving all of these resources that we have, our daily bread, and then a bucket full, a load, a dump truck load full of resources that He has poured out upon us. But the woman, unlike the dinner guest, saw what, where Jesus was going. She got it. But look in verse 6 to 9. We see that our Lord jumps in and defends her and praises her. Jesus said in verse 6, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? Why are you bothering this woman? Jesus doesn't enter into debate with the disciples. He, he, he just defends her. He knew that he was going to be that suffering servant that's spoken of in Isaiah prophecy, that he would be numbered among the transgressors, that he would be buried. All of this is, is prophesied in Isaiah 53, and he accepts this anointing in preparation for his own burial, which was just days away. And so the heart-penetrating question, why are you bothering her? Why are you bothering her? Why is your, your nostrils flaring with anger over what this woman has done? What's wrong with you men? You have to keep in mind that Jesus again and again has said what lies in the future for him. That he's going to be betrayed. That he's going to be condemned. And that he is going to be killed. But that he will rise again from the dead. You have to wonder if these disciples thought maybe that's some future, future prophecy or something that they didn't see the pieces falling into place. Of course, it's great for us in hindsight, looking back and having them revealed. In verse 7, it says, and this can be missed, taken the wrong way, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. Now, some mistake that to say that it's some kind of a cold statement of indifference towards the poor. No, <laughs> what Jesus is saying, you, the days are numbered that you're going to have with me. You'll have the poor always with you. You can always do good to them. In fact, the heart of, of God is compassion for orphans and widows and for the desolate again and again in the Psalms, again and again through the prophecies of the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. How blessed is he, Psalm 41, who considers the helpless the Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive, and he shall call him blessed on the earth. Our Lord affirms that she has done a good thing for me. She has done a good thing. She's done what she could. She's done a good thing for me. What an awesome statement of praise. And then look at what he says in verse... 9, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of her. <clears throat> this is the last time our Lord uses the, the word gospel. The first time was in the context of proclamation with the first words of, out of his mouth to repent and to believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's in chapter 1 and verse 14 and 15. 
listen to J.C. Ryle again as he draws some appropriate application. Let us, like this holy woman, whose conduct we have just heard described, devote ourselves and our all we have to Christ's glory. Our position in the world may be lowly, our means of usefulness few, but let us be like her and to do what we can. Well, we've seen this dreadful murder plot, sort of as bookends with this beautiful display of devotion and and a picture, a pointing of how his body is being prepared for burial. It says in verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And so now we come to the preparation for Passover. And we're going well, to pick this up next time at verse 17 as we look at the institution of the Lord's Supper. But I wanted to get these preliminary comments out of the way. Verses 12 to 16. Um, it's the first day of unleavened bread when the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. There's our time stamp. We're now into Thursday. Okay? So Wednesday was obviously probably a, a day of incredible rest, I would think. Um, if you catalog all the events that took place on Tuesday, uh, Wednesday was a day of rest, and now the Passover day had come. So this is two days later. The event that takes place here with going and, and finding the man with the water pitcher and finding the upper room is very similar to what happened in chapter 11. Do you remember right before the triumphal entry, he sends two disciples ahead to go find the colt and to bring it to him and and exact messages and all of that. And both events turn out exactly how Jesus said that it would. Now, I'm going to emphasize this next week as well, but the timing of Christ's death to the Passover is absolutely deliberate. I mean, it's the fulfillment of all these sacrifices that point to Christ, who is our Passover lamb. The thousands, yea, millions of lambs that have been slaughtered over 1,500 years um, since Egypt, and the deliverance from Egypt, all fulfilled in one death, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to mention all the other sacrifices. That's just the Passover lambs. Well, let's unpack this a little bit. According to Deuteronomy 16, you had to be in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. If you were a pilgrim, you could not get there. You don't slaughter a lamb on the outskirts or in some other town or in Galilee. You had to be within the walls of Jerusalem. The historian Josephus, who was known to exaggerate from time to time, and he may be exaggerating here some, but it makes the point that I'm going to say, records that in AD 66, there were 255,000 lambs slaughtered in the temple. On Passover. Now, if you figure about 10 dinners per lamb, that's 2.5 million people. Even if that's exaggerated, there was no doubt hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people there. Uh, the, the point is this the population of Jerusalem was at its all time high during this feast, okay? It's crowded, it's congested, every single guest room is being filled. And by God's providential appointment, our Lord would be crucified on this very day. The very day that the Passover lambs were slaughtered. The thousands and thousands and however many thousands of lambs that were slaughtered would be the very day that he would be slaughtered. It was designed to draw attention to the Jewish nation that that Jesus Christ is indeed the promised Messiah that he is the one that fulfills all these prophecies. 
that all the sacrifices pointed in a striking type and shadow, uh, shadow all pointing to Christ. Now, in verse 12, it says that he sent two disciples. Um, Luke tells us that it was Peter and John to go on ahead to find this man carrying a, a, pair, uh, a pitcher of water. And you think, okay, there's hundreds of thousands of people. There's probably lots of fetching of water. There wasn't a whole lot of water supplies in Jerusalem. To look for a man carrying a pot of water, well, this was typically woman's work. And so if men ca- carried water, it would be in a, a wineskin of some sort. Uh, but to, a man carrying a pitcher of water would stand out. And so he tells them what to look for, tells them where to go, tells them what to say. The teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, if you lived in Jerusalem within the walls, you were required to make, provide as many guest rooms as you possibly could for traveling pilgrims coming in. And so this is all prearranged, foreordained, um, completely laid out. It, it unfolds exactly how our Lord says, and that you will find a room furnished and ready. And so this is the large upper room. It's furnished and ready and prepared for our Lord. Jesus predicts with sovereign precision how this would unfold and, and how, it, uh, how, it, how it plays out. Reminds me of Hebrews 4. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He sees all things. He orchestrates all things by his providence. Now, you ask, well, whose house was this? There's lots of speculation. There's some that say the man carrying the pitcher was Mark. There's some that say that the house is John Mark's mother, which is possible if it's the same upper room that's mentioned in Acts chapter 1 after the ascension. We just don't know those things, and we don't need to know those. Well, having raced through that very quickly, just a couple of concluding comments today. And the first is pretty obvious. Are you fully devoted to Christ? Is there something that you hold back, that he's not worthy of your all? Something that you're withholding from him? Or are you fully devoted to him? Maybe you're here today and you're a first-time visitor. and Maybe you've been invited or you've just wandered in. I have a question. Are you in darkness? Do you know about this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know something of the own, your own wickedness and, and darkness within you? Jesus says in John 3, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Do you devise wickedness? Do you devise evil plots? Do you sit with envy, desiring some type of wickedness to befall somebody else? Even if it's a non-believer, whatever, that's wrong. And this is very clear here. The Psalms speak of this idea of devising wickedness and planning schemes and all that, that that is a mark of a reprobate. Do you see Jesus Christ as that great and final Passover lamb? There's no more need to slaughter lambs. He has been sacrificed once and for all, the great and final sacrifice. Your responsibility is to look to him and to trust in him to repent of your sins, admit that you're a sinner, admit that you can't save yourself. All of your good works are nothing but filthy rags before a holy God. 
And that's why you come and then you embrace Christ by faith. His perfect life, he never sinned. His righteousness is imputed to us as he paid for our sins, imputed to him. Paul says in the book of Romans that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Why do people want to complicate the gospel? Come in faith, admitting that you're a sinner. Believe that He is the Lord. He is the one that is paid for salvation. And then even as I've been remembered, how during the Reformation, there was a rediscovery of the Word of God and the plain teaching of the Gospel. A rediscovery of these grand truths that were saved by grace through faith. And, and it's, it's a reminder that this book was ignored for hundreds of years, largely. Now, the printing press has certainly helped that, but are we allowing dust to fall on our Bibles? You see, it is in the Word of God that we learn of Jesus, that we learn more of Him and what He's about. He's on every page. It's, it's in the Word of God that we learn how to be saved. It's, it's in the Word of God where we learn God's will for our lives. May we not... Neglect the Word of God, for it is there that we see God displayed in all of His glorious attributes and His character and His wisdom and His mercy and love. And then He is one to be fully devoted to, sold out for Jesus. And if anybody thinks I'm a fanatic, fine, let them think that. But be sold out for Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for your word, we thank you for this portion of scripture and just a very sobering thought that we're in within 24 hours of our Lord's death in this gospel narrative. Having covered three and a half years of earthly ministry, uh, Lord, it is very sobering. We thank you for how your word is laid out and I pray that you would give us understanding. Lord, most of all, that you would give us a full, wholehearted devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given his all on our behalf. And should we not, out of gratitude, return and give our all, our gratitude, our love, our devotion, in response. We pray in Jesus' name.